Welcome to the Independent Artist Podcast, sponsored by the National Association of Independent Artists. Also sponsored by Zapplication. I'm Will Armstrong, and I'm a mixed media artist. I'm Douglas Sigworth, glassblower. Join our conversations with professional working artists. Hey guys, hey, welcome back to the show, everybody. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. It's just me this week, sorry to say. Will had a pretty busy schedule going on here. He had a show in Miami, followed by a show on the opposite side of the country over in La Quinta, California. So the time was not going to work out that we could get together to record, but don't worry. I've got a really great guest today, and we're going to jump right into this conversation. I'm sitting here looking right at our guest, Lisa Kattenbreaker from Olympia, Washington. Lisa, good to see you. It's nice to see your face. Nice to see your face. It's been a while. Yeah, this is kind of like... Let's be neighbors at a show. You know, that's exactly right. And the other thing I wanted to say about that is while everyone else is off making money and having a good time, (laughs) we get to sit here and have our own little talk, right? You know, I am not sad that I am not at a show. You're not? Okay. (laughs) Well, that's good. I will say I get a little FOMO from time to time. Yeah. Well, you've been, you're a little, you're kind of down for the count for a little while. So it's not necessarily by choice. There's like four walls I'm staring at and they're they're making me crazy. But yeah, if you can actually do stuff and have fun in your hometown and not be trapped, it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. Yeah. And so Scott just got back from his doctor's appointment. We were just having a nice little conversation about, you know, how much pain he's in and all of our aches and ailments. And I was like, and I'm going to talk to Douglas Sigworth. (laughs) who's been dealing with this for his whole life. I think we should shut up. (laughs) Nope, 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 nope. I mean, anything I've learned from this process is I, at first you get, for me anyway, I got very like self-centered, very much in my own, what I'm dealing with, you know? And as time goes on, every person I meet, it becomes like we share our wounds with each other. And it's the human condition and aging and all that stuff. That's it. Absolutely. You know, that's absolutely you touch on something that's such an important part of my life and understanding about life is when we at the times that we feel like we are most alone and our situation Mm -hmm. is the most unique and we're feeling sorry for ourselves. You look around and you realize, oh, no, no, everyone else is feeling like this Mm -hmm. or feeling some piece of this in some way. And it allows you to have compassion for yourself and for other people. Patience for yourself, too. I mean, that's the thing. I, I get so impatient. And mm-hmm. when I hear what other, you know, some other people are experiencing and stuff, and I'm like, you just need to chill out. You know, there's plenty of people got it worse than you. And so, like you said, it's compassion, empathy. Right. And pain is a physical pain does a lot to your mind as well. You know what? So. It does a lot to the mind and it, it can take its toll on relationships, too. Renee has been amazing, but I am not easy to deal with. Believe me. I mean, I become a big old baby. So We all do. We all do. (laughs) There's definitely like, this is probably Scott's first serious kind of chronic injury that he's had in his life. What's he dealing with? I'm sorry. I didn't know what's going on with him. No, I mean, he's going to just kill me for talking about this right now, but also I don't care Um, because it actually affects our our life too. But he did... Something to his shoulder. He did construction for years, and so there was a lot of probably wear and tear. Last year, I think he was carrying a big piece of mine in the wind, and something tweaked, Mm -hmm. and then it's just sort of gotten gradually worse. And then in January, he just 
did some stretch or something and something something popped and he hasn't oh. been able to like move. He, I mean, he can't really move. He can't lift anything. He can't sleep. He's seen doctors that are like, it's this. No, it's this. No, go over here. And so nobody is really diagnosing it. And he's just miserable. He's just miserable. All of that trying to figure out what you're dealing with, the doctors say, well, let's try this. Well, let's try that. That's its own struggle right there. That's, yeah. So <laughs> this is, I've definitely had moments where I've not been nice and i've been like well now you know what it feels like <laughs> Get a little, you For know there the was us. there was a, a moment where renee had to kind of remind me she says you know what there's times where i'm just kind of fed up with this whole thing too as much as you are so you know i'm i'm i can be there 99% and happy smiley supportive but there's days i've had it up to here and and, and it's tough so yes and go in your corner and Go in your podcast corner by yourself. Yes. <laughs> Go talk with Will and have a nice little chat and come back in a better mood. <laughs> right? You can talk about all the terrible things that happened at art shows that you're so glad you're not at. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of artists and art shows and stuff, let's turn the focus on to Lisa. How does that sound? <laughs> I just rolled my eyes at myself. You did. That was a major eye roll. <laughs> So for those who haven't, uh, who don't know you or just getting to know you for the first time, tell us about your work and what you do and all that stuff. Uh, my name's Lisa. Uh, <laughs> I, I work with Batik. So I'm one of the only Batik people out there when you are at the shows. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to admit that I am a little ignorant in this. Can you actually talk to me like I'm a kindergartner and you're describing Batik? I know it's fiber, but I don't know yeah. much more than that. It's the process of dyeing fabric. So it's all fabric and it's all dyed. When you see it, I think walking by, you wouldn't be like, oh, that's dyed fabric because it does look like paintings or just some other 2D work. But mm -hmm. it is all dyed fabric using wax as a resist. So it's a resist process. Oh. It's really not like anything else. But when I'm explaining to people in the booth about it, like you're dyeing it one color, putting wax on where you want the, the color to be preserved. Everything that's open gets the next color. Wax mm. over that. Dye it again. Wax it again. So it's kind of like printmaking in reverse. That's a terrible way to explain it. <laughs> is it typically used in like creating an image, or is batik also something that translates over to functional wearable? Yeah. Um, so it's a fiber as it's well. It's a really old process uh, that originated okay. in Indonesia, and it was a it was a fabric design process. Okay. So designing patterns and fabrics for families, uh, wearable things. And then as it has evolved, it's it's traveled to different parts of the world and took on different aspects. Uh, and the way I use it is more decorative, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is, you do, see, you do find batik fabric uh, from Africa and from Indonesia and from Asia that is used in clothing. And that's more typically pattern designs, and things. Uh, but mm. it's so nonlinear and it's so uh, tactile. And it's something that, you know, you're working with a lot of negative space. You're working with, you're not painting some colors on, you're putting wax where you want to preserve things. Colors are layered on top of each other, like watercolor. Yeah. It's like a lot of different things, but it's not like anything at all. And so it, it, it tends to be hard for people to sort of get a visual of it when I'm explaining it. Mm -hmm. And that's where. It is nice to be able to see it and to feel it. Uh, it's nice for people in the booth to be able to have something to touch and feel. And I usually will have 
things that are like in the in different steps in the process so that they can see it. Hmm. But the end result is that there is a whole image that's dyed into fabric. So the final product is just a piece of fabric again. And it's a it's a real complicated image that's dyed all, all the way into it. So in, in your pieces, which I love your work, and I, I love like yeah. kind of like the joy and the expressiveness and the community that is reflected in your work. Thank you. Is the fabric you're using all one piece of fabric or is it piece pieces put together? Yeah, no, it's it's all one. I just said, yeah, no, that's such a Midwestern thing. It yeah, is, no. right. Yeah, no, it's one, <laughs> it's one, uh, it's one big piece. <laughs> it's one single piece of fabric. Gotcha. That oh. is is dyed all the whole thing is dyed into one piece of fabric. So there's not really anything pieced together. If you want one figure, let's say, to be wearing a, a textured blue dress or something, so then everything else gets a resist on it, and then mm-hmm. so that just dyes on that part of the fabric. Yeah, that's that is interesting. I did not know yeah. that. That's really so, intricate. and that's that's the difference I think between what people typically see in batik and what. You know what what I'm doing, because typically you're seeing just a couple of colors because you're doing like yellow and blue and that makes green. Right. Instead of a lot of contrasting colors. And so what I'm doing is it's just the same process times four or five. So I'm putting the resist on there and then taking that off multiple times, rewaxing all these areas, dyeing real specific areas, taking the wax off again. Uh, It's just a extra steps in order to get what I want to see into the piece. Well, what got you started with working in that way? When I was introduced to the medium, I I loved it immediately. It was, Mm. there was something very, it's just different than anything else that I had ever worked with. I'm, I'm basically self-taught. So, you know, I had like a random class in high school that was teaching like, here's all the fiber arts. Here's, weaving and here's sewing and here's tie-dye and here's batik. And Mm -hmm. I loved the batik part. And my teacher kind of just said, I don't really know what to tell you other than what I know. Here's some books. And this is pre-internet, of course. And so I'm looking through all these books and doing all this research. And what I was seeing was a lot of, a lot of things were very similar to each other. Okay. Not a lot of big color contrast, not a lot of figurative work. Mm-hmm. The images that I had in my head were not what I was seeing. And the colors that I wanted to work with were not what I was seeing. And because I loved this particular process, I just did a whole lot of experimenting. And mm-hmm. it was like a giant puzzle. For years, it was a big puzzle of how do I do this? How do I make what is in my head get onto this fabric using only dye and wax and only in these parameters and only letting the, you know, using the wax to, uh, to prevent the dye from going to places. And Mm. so it was just my own Mm -hmm. curiosity. Okay. So that came early on. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I was, I was an angsty teenager. I wanted to do something that no one else wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> that that made you cool. If someone says, "What do you, what do you like to do?" And you're like batik, and they're like, "Baha, well, what?" what is that? <laughs> yes, it was very wow. mysterious. Okay, so isn't this year something special regarding yeah, the so craft of batik? Yeah, I didn't know this until recently, but there is an international batik guild, mm. and because batik really it did originate on the other side of the world. 
a lot of okay. people who practice this craft are from all over the world. And there is an oh, international yeah. petite guild that has members from all over the place. And they recently reached out to me and asked me to be part of it. And oh. and how did they find it, you? Just from on the I road don't or know. internet? Okay. <laughs> just the magic of the internet. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just learning about this guild and and they are doing this global push to expand the education and understanding of this craft because it is such an old technique that mm-hmm. with the modernization of fabric and printing, it runs the risk of being obsolete in certain cultures because it was such a huge part of all of these cultures and communities. And so there's a big push to educate the general public on this this ancient craft. You know, they're doing workshops all over the all over the world, different batik artists are, and they're really trying to bring batik artists together to share information and ideas and because there's not a lot of education in in fine art establishments with this particular craft, it's kind of pooling resources to bring this out a little bit farther. And so June, I believe, is the very first all-batik exhibit in the United States. Where's that going to be? That will be in Naples, Florida. But that kind of blew my mind when I found out that there has never been a single exhibit. Really? significant gallery or museum exhibit that is all batik. So I'm really excited to see that because there's so many different ways that this is used in so many different, I mean, the possibilities are endless. And because it is so time consuming, each artist really only has time for like a specific avenue to, mm-hmm. to play with. And so to bring all of these people that are doing it in different ways and they have different visions and even using different materials, it's going to be really exciting. Wow. You know, what you were saying about how it has this uh, danger of dying out, you know, would it not be for this kind of exposure? Do you get this kind of statement? When people come into our booth and they'll talk about glass blowing, often I hear the the statement, oh, this is a dying art, right? Or an, an old art or something in that regards. And it kind of seems like it's what you're just what you're doing or or you know, the medium you're working in has kind of that unique rare quality about it that it's not as widely known. Yeah, I I didn't realize that until more recently. And it's because it's been so much a part of your life, you're saying because, like Yeah, because it's yeah. always it's been so much a part of my life and I am realizing, you know, we're entering into we've screw it, we've entered into a whole new world of quick work of things oh. being digitized, of AI, of all of these, you know, of of things happening online and in the whatever universe, yeah. the interweb cyber universe, ether. cyber universe, <laughs> yeah. that are, things are not being made by hand. Things that are being made by hand are becoming, uh, I think, a valuable commodity. And it's important to pass on these skills to the next generations as well. I mean, it's like pottery. It's like glass blowing. Anything that's made by hand uh-huh. Um, does run the risk of being lost if we don't preserve it and continue to teach people to to do this. That's, and why it's important even too, I, you know? Because yeah. some people are like, well, you know, it's just something nice to put in your house that makes your house look cheery. You know, I mean, that, but, you know, that's stuff that we all make. And you're like, well, it's more right. than that. It's kind of like we dedicate our lives to this. Right. Um, and we're not the first generation to do that. This has been happening for eons, that there were always people 
in the communities that were the the crafters. They were the ones making the the useful items beautiful. And they yeah. were also it was also a way to preserve stories. And I think that's mm. what a lot of art is, is it's a way to preserve stories for the next generation. And that's definitely part of what I'm doing. Cool. Well, Renee and I went to the uh, Chicago Institute of Art last weekend, and we had a, um, you know, some conversations about looking back at like you know Renaissance art, medieval art, all this different different types of things. And obviously, there weren't cameras. There weren't like like now how we capture a selfie of whatever is happening in front of whatever. And that was a way to preserve history. It was a way to infuse not just history, but also like the energy of the creator into something. And I do wonder if if technology is going to eventually like leave what we do behind. You know, is is it going to be still seen as valuable? I hope it is. I I I don't know. I I don't have any doubt that what artists are doing is going to be seen as valuable because I mean the whole internet could go down. Yeah. And these creators, content creators would lose everything. Like if that is wiped out, then that's all gone. Mm. There's not the tangible thing other than the memory of it. Right. And then when you're making a thing, it is a little bit of alchemy. You are you are changing something and you're creating something and you're putting energy, tangible energy into something that somebody can actually experience and feel. And that's not to say that everything on the internet would go away. It is music is that too. Music isn't something that you can see, but it's something that you can feel. It's something you can experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know, I had a lot of these conversations during the pandemic when we were doing so much Definitely. so much art sales online. And the right. question was, is this how it's going to be forever now? Are art shows ever going to come back? Are people going to want to actually go and and be in person? And yeah. I felt very strongly that Absolutely. People need to to experience the energy because like you said, that's what artists are doing is they're putting energy into their work. And that really does translate in person. And I, and I think it's important. The story, the energy that as an artist, we put into stuff. People need that exchange of energy. And that's that, that ethereal thing that, you know, we can't tangibly define, but it's, it's the feeling that we get from the work, from the energy put into the work. And I think with the road shows, it's meeting the artist and taking home an artifact of their interaction with that artist, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think Absolutely. you're right. I think you're right. That'll stay. Yeah. I don't, I, I try not to worry about it too much. <laughs> <laughs> Just get back in the studio and keep making things. That's keep our making. job. <laughs> yeah. So, so tell me, I, do I remember this correctly? Was your mom, is your mom of, a fiber artist as well? Is that how you got into she, it or no? Well, there was always fabric around in my house. Um, she see. did a lot of sewing. She was incredibly industrious and mm-hmm. could make all kinds of things. And so I think the fabric aspect is just something that was always around me. So that felt like home when I was introduced to, to Batik because there's the, the fiber part of it. So like and, she made clothes for you? Oh, for she your, made everything. She made clothes. She made, she made quilts. She made our like furniture stuff, you know, like refurnished things. She, she always quilted. So everybody in our family has multiple quilts that were made by her. And um, later on her life, she would take pieces of mine. Like if I finished a piece and I was like, I don't like this. 
and she'd be real excited and she'd take it and she'd cut it up and use it in patchwork quilts and things and make pit pillows and purses. And that was a really fun, uh, fun thing to be able to do with her for sure. As I get older and she's passed, that's become much more poignant to me and much more part of the story that I am trying to tell in my work is uh, this passing along of information from one generation to another for her. It was through her hands and through this fabric and it, did definitely get passed down to me in that. And then what I'm working on in my more recent series has a Mm -hmm. lot to do with that passing down of generational information and wisdom and putting that into the work that I do. And then hopefully that'll get passed down to the next generation as well. Hang tight. We'll be right back. This episode of the Independent Artist Podcast is brought to you by Zap the digital application service where artists and art festivals connect. Look, Douglas, I like having all of my shows that I've applied for in one place, and that's why Mm. I kind of prefer to use Zap, because Zap is a standard in our industry. And you know, I tend to do things a little bit last minute, so I like to save all the shows I like to do as favorites, so then I can go back in and sort them by application deadline so I never miss out. When I get rejected from a show or waitlisted to a show that I was counting on and I need to panic apply, I reach for his application. <laughs> I can go through and scroll through an entire area and over-apply to seven different things after I've had a couple of glasses of wine. <laughs> Thanks, Zap, for allowing us a backup plan. <laughs> What are some of the stories that you like to tell in your work or what kinds of stories do you find yourself drawn to? I'm pretty self-centered, so they're all about me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like what are some of those stories? Is it um, You know, it, I noticed nature is a big theme for you, right? Like gardening. Oh, for sure. And, yeah. I mean, for me art has always been about processing how I experience the world. Like was a very I was a very shy kid. I was a very uh, wait, introverted. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, stop. Back that one up. Mm-hmm. You were a shy kid because you yeah. seem like a very like socially extrovert. You have, a, you know what I mean. You have, <laughs> you, like, have a, if... you have a, you have a, you have a very happy and approachable personality. Is what I'm saying. Well, good. So. I I hope so. I mean, that is important to me. But underneath it, I'm an absolute hermit. I am an absolute really? hermit. I am an absolute introvert. I am somewhat terrified of the outside world. Uh, <laughs> art shows are home, you know, so it's yeah. got a lot of my people there and I feel at home there. All of my friends know that, like, if I've been around people for more than, you know, a few hours, <laughs> you better leave me alone. <laughs> or if I, come home from, if I come home from an art show, my friends know, like, I won't respond to texts or phone calls. You're not going to see me for weeks. Like I will be, I will, I have to refill. I have to refill. That's just, so I'm glad that I, that I am approachable and and friendly. That's important to me to put out into the world, but it takes a lot to refill that for myself. Okay. But you were saying as a youngster, you felt more shy. As a, as a young person, I was very shy and I definitely didn't, didn't have the skills that you have to, you learn the skill set to, Um, to engage with people. Mm -hmm. Some of us never learn it so well, but (laughs) we are trying. trying. Um, But yeah, I was, I was very shy. I did not, did not feel like I could communicate with the world. And so art was how I dealt with that. It's how I made myself feel at home. 
and and I continued to do that. It still is that for me. It's it's a therapy. You know, it's even something I studied in my little bits of college that I went to is art therapy and using that as a way to communicate. So for me, this work is about processing my life. It's easier to do in this way than it is to talk about my life. Um, and it's easier for me to understand all of my emotions and all the things that I'm going through. And so obviously, like there's been huge things in my life, like the birth of my children. Pretty mm -hmm. big. Yeah. That's something that you process for your, the whole rest of your life. Right. And Making so, a human. <laughs> making a human, raising humans, all of the the joy and the grief that is part of that. And so there have been different periods and decades of my life that I'm that I'm working on things that are obviously dealing with very specific things. So there was definitely my era when my kids were little of processing what that was to be a mother and to move from this individual and independent woman into being a mother mm -hmm. and what that looked like for me, just how it affected me, which was which was immense. And my kids and my family have always, I mean, I had kids when I was very young. So mm -hmm. I spent most of my adult life, that has been my role is Right. Mother. Caring for somebody. Yeah. yeah. Mother. Yeah. Yeah. And and so there's a lot of my work has been about that. But then it's also about how I interact and how I my place in the community, my place in in, you know, generations of women amongst all kinds of other things. Like sure. where does magic come from? Where why am I doing this weird work in a studio that is a medium that doesn't make any sense? And then what am I, what am I doing? And then I go out and I meet strange people. And that itself is such a mind blowing thing that we do. Um, and somehow it all just works. It all just like in the end, it just like, yeah, that mystery of how we make it all work, it just somehow does. It does. And in the last few years, one of the things that's been really interesting to me is that question of what the, what am I doing this for? Why am I doing this? Why am yeah. I sitting here making this picture? I don't quite, it makes sense to me, but who would want to see this? Who would want this? Mm. But I have reasons and I have emotions and I have sort of like this this river of unconsciousness that I feel like I'm swimming in. It never fails that I finish these pieces and take it out. And like you were saying before, it's that energy that you're working with yeah. and you're capturing. And I'm very intentional about that energy and bringing it out into the world and then having someone come in and just immediately connect with it in a way that I never would have imagined somebody would and it will touch into some very specific part of what they're going through at that time okay and that's the magic but they assign kind of a different meaning that is more personal to them and maybe the creation energy that went into it might have been from a different point of view yeah. but yet it it's still that moment happens where that moment happens and so yeah. i think you know, your question probably didn't intend for it to be answered in this way, but I think what is more interesting to me now is not the stories that I'm trying to tell about myself, yeah, but making sure that I connect with a particular story in myself and knowing that there is a much larger consciousness that this is also working with. And what's mm -hmm. really interesting to me now is when people come in and they 
connect and can tell me their story. And yeah. it always does connect with something that I was working with, you know, an emotion or an idea that I was working with, but in sometimes fascinatingly different ways. Yeah. And that to me is pretty magical. It's almost validating too that, you know, that you're on this crazy mission, you know, that, it, that's it hard does, to determine why we're doing it. And then that happens. And Yeah, it does feel like a mission. And I've kind of taken taken a backseat to my own stories now and understood that it's sort of become my responsibility. Like if I'm able to feel this and I'm able to allow somebody else to have a place to put some of these really strong feelings and these really big stories and these, sometimes they're, they're, like what I call legacy pieces, where somebody can really put something huge that they're carrying onto this and then put it on their wall. They don't have to carry it inside of them anymore. Mm-hmm. It's a place for it to land, for them to visit. Mm-hmm. That has become a driving force for me. And it does feel like like a responsibility that I have now to just cool. be open to whatever I'm, whatever's coming in. Mm-hmm. Let it go out there and trust that it's it's doing its job. It's there for a reason. You know, that's another reason why I love selling the work in the way that we do is that those moments, it is, there's a, there's a sharing that happens when people will say, you know, oh, like for us, we've had so many stories of people whose parents have collected glass and all the things they love about it and and just to hear that or or what the work does for them when they see it, it's so meaningful to know that what we devote our life to and this mystery of where it's going to go and what it means to people, if we just let that go and just let that unfold, being in person with people, we get to share in that interaction. Yeah. And I yeah. love it. I love it too. I do. And it it does for me, it's my way of communicating. It sort of validates that like I don't always do well communicating in words with people. Okay. But this is a way that I can share and express and and communicate with the world. Cool. Well, yeah. how did you find art shows as a way to make that interaction? So Scott's mom is an artist. So Scott, okay. I don't know for anyone who doesn't know, Mr. Scott Kettenbreaker is my husband and we, um, <laughs> and he's a great guy. He's the extrovert. Okay. Gotcha. So so he wears a lot of creative hats, right? Like he makes his own work and he's also a musician, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's very, very creative and he is is just, he's very fun. Mm -hmm. His mom was an artist, is an artist and did art shows. So he was an art show kid. Gotcha. And I, you know, when I met him, that's where I kind of fell into it. And so we, I guess starting in 2000, really, he was doing... For those that know me kind of on the West Coast and maybe don't know that Scott did art shows for six years on the East Coast, he was doing like 20 to 30 shows a year. So he did a lot of shows on the East Coast in the Mm early 2000s. And that's where we met a lot of our art show buddies. And at that time we had, you know, little, little kids. We were the little traveling art show family for yeah. quite a few years. And it just, it, it worked for us. We mm-hmm. kind of fell into it in our early twenties and it just became what we did, you yeah. know? Yeah. And we didn't, we didn't, we got on, on the art show hamster wheel and can't get off. You know, the more people I talk to these days on the podcast, it seems like the year 2000, early 2000, there is a lot of us that got 
on the scene around then. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, what some of the established artists who are kind of the hippies, what if they if they saw that influx, if they were, you know, if they saw the next generation. I know a lot of us talk about now about wondering if we will have a next generation who's interested in the art show model. We were young. We were early 20s. And mm-hmm. the the folks that were on the art show circuit were so inviting to us. Mm-hmm. They we were taken under their wings. So, you know, we moved into this tiny little town and it turns out it had these art shows artists in there and they just absolutely uh embraced us and really mentored us and encouraged us. And I don't think we would have been able to make it work had it not been for them. And really yeah. a lot of the I mean, I can't think of I can't think of any artist on the circuit when we were young that were mean to us. You know, mm-hmm. they all mm-hmm. were encouraging us and they wanted this. I think also, you know, if we were coming off of the the grand 90s where a lot of art show artists were really making That was bank. the glory days, And they were right? like, this is amazing. <laughs> you want to get on on this. Yeah, yeah. And we were like, why, yes, we do. Um, <laughs> and, then to, and then 9-11 happened. Yeah. <laughs> and we were like, oh, Oh, you should have been we, doing oh. this 10 years ago. <laughs> this is when it was great. <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, we had just these wonderful mentors. And I think, you know, I'm seeing a resurgence of that mentorship happen. And I, th- as as maybe it's our generation, it's, it's our generation's responsibility now to yeah. mentor the next generation coming in. Welcome it on. felt less at that time competitive than it does now. Mm. <sighs> I, I I wonder. And maybe yeah. maybe I'm wrong. It just felt I think guess shows felt less competitive. I guess there mm-hmm. weren't as many people applying to shows. Could be one that of the things. Or we just one. didn't know, you know? And there's that too. That's that's what came to my mind was I didn't maybe know back then what the the top twenty or the top ten were, you know, and did mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of dogs. <laughs> <laughs> for oh, oh, yeah. for years. Oh. oh, those were fun. We had we had oh gosh, I'll tell you this story. We were, you know, my parents were such troopers to support us. We're, you okay. know, 23, 24 years old. We had a baby. We lived in the middle of nowhere. Our job was art. <laughs> what? Was um, this Washington were, or is this when it was no, on the No, this was Virginia. Coast. This is rural Virginia. this is rural Virginia. Okay. And we had really quit all other money-making endeavors by the time our son was one mm-hmm. and just did art shows. And I, I don't know what our, our, what our parents thought at the time, but it had to have been a little scary for them to watch. Right. Um, so anyways, we're, my dad came out to, to visit and traveled down to Florida with us. We're like, come to this art show. Well, it's so much fun. There's artists. We make money and... Yeah. You know, have a little vacation. So he came out to visit and we packed everybody in the van, went down to Florida for, it was like, I don't know what show it was because we never did it again. <laughs> um, he came out, my sister came out to visit. We're sitting at the show for three days and it was a big old goose egg, like zero. Oh my god, Zero dollars. <laughs> and my dad is probably seeing these, <laughs> seeing us spend all this money being there and going, what did you decide to do? <laughs> and yeah, that happened once in a while. That's why you did 30 shows a year. Right. You had to make up for those ones that were real bad. Yeah. And because we didn't, we didn't know. 
Well, I remember my when we got into it, my my dad. It wasn't say it was advice. He was trying to kind of scare us, I think, a little bit um, in, into thinking about what we were actually going to undertake here. And um, my stepmother, um, his wife, was a painter, and I don't know if it was it was probably oils anyway. And she's landscape and all that stuff. And she used to sell her work by like setting up a card table uh, like along the street or something, you know, like at a busy mall yep. or something like that. When and yeah, you could do that with like a lawn chair and a you know folding table, and she wouldn't sell anything in the course of time that she was there. And he said, "You know what? She always used to say, Doug. She always used to say, well, that's fine. I didn't want to sell it anyway. So this is the life you're going to have ahead of you.' And you know, lucky I just kind of had this drive in me that I didn't care. You know, I was going to experience yeah. it for myself, and I always knew I'd land on my feet. And if it didn't work out, I'd morph into something else it was fine you know yeah i guess we were young and naive enough to think that it will it'll work out if you work hard that's what your 20s at least that's what our 20s were for we were incredibly ambitious we had all the energy in the world right we're like we'll just do this and yeah scott's you know scott's mom was always real encouraging as well and because she'd gone down that road she knew what it was like yeah yeah Yeah. and all these other wonderful artists were always so encouraging of like, don't worry, that was just a really crappy show. Yeah. Let's do this one. Let's do an open studio. Let's do, right. you know, they kind of held our hands through it and helped us along the way. Well, and, what was um, life yeah. on what was life on the road with raising kids? Let's talk about that a bit, shall Let's we? Let's talk about that because I want to know how it was for you. I just <laughs> I it was like a life. For, for me it was it was stress. It was nonstop. <laughs> stress and it might be the roles in the family a little bit but i mean i have all the nurturing in the world but i i just felt like there was so much pressure all the time and mm-hmm. the pace was i'm pretty crazy. i'm pretty sure i blacked out for about 18 years <laughs> so <laughs> i don't i don't know i just it, remember I, going in and out of hotels with luggage carts that were stacked up to the friggin' sky with stuffed animals and games and you name it, you know, yeah. to keep them entertained for the weekend. I'm still, I'm still absolutely exhausted. <laughs> um, I, I don't, I want to whisper that because I see other, I see other families on the circuit. And I'm like, oh yeah, you're doing it too. Yeah. We, you know, we, it was such a special thing and we definitely felt like we were sort of odd ducks out there, but there were a couple of families that were doing it and yeah. it was fun. And I asked our kids the other day, I was like, I'm going to do this. And I'm probably going to talk about you. Is there anything that you guys remember from the art shows is there anything that you want me to share like what what are your thoughts about all these years on the road and it ranged from pure joy to trauma okay (laughs) (laughs) everything in between Uh uh-huh uh yeah and it's just for them they're like this is just what we knew this is this is what you did this is what we knew it was definitely stressful at times. You know, you're mm-hmm. wearing a couple of hats. Um, you don't want your kid to run off shows. at a show and oh get kidnapped and We safety. lost a kid once. Yeah, we lost one once. Oh, my Luckily, God. we found her. <laughs> did she go wandering or did she go with somebody? She did. You know, this was – our kids probably think we were absolute idiots. <laughs> you know, we're at – we were at a show. There was a fence around the show. They couldn't really go too far. Okay. But still, they were relatively young, and it was like, oh, go, you know, go play on the playground. Sure. Uh, come back in just a little bit. And one of them came back. Our son came back. 
And we were like, well, where's Stella? She's like, I don't know. Okay. Where? Oh, I thought she came back with, I thought she already uh, came back to your booth or whatever. And it was know? such a crappy, it was such a crappy show. We, we tried to only do shows for years. We would do like one of us would do the show. The other one would have the kids. The other one would do a show. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. The other one would have the kids. Once a year, we would both do a show and bring the kids. And then okay. we would tell ourselves we will never do that never. again. And Ever. then the amnesia sets then, in at some point, right? <laughs> yep. And we're like, how about this year? Maybe this year they're old enough. <laughs> um, we we yeah. actually had a patron at a show. It was me and my daughter, just the two of us at a show, preteen, probably nine or 10. And the woman insisted that she was going to walk her purchase to the car. And somehow my daughter was just going to find her way back and blah, blah, blah. And I'm shooting it down. And then the woman is saying she's going to buy her candy from the candy store. I'm like, literally, this lady is enticing to take my kid by buying her candy. I mean, hello. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And going to a big van. (laughs) My daughter got so excited. She had she like she made a new friend and it was that easy. And I was like, oh, that was rough. That was really. Oh, gosh, I know. I don't know if we should teach you to trust people or to really not trust people. Right. It it is interesting. I will say as a family, and I don't know if you guys traveled a lot. You you traveled a lot together. All Um, all of you. Initially, yeah. And then we kind of came into some family challenges. My son had diabetes. So that traveling and diabetes not go together. It it made life really Mm -hmm. difficult. So then it became... Renee stayed home and raised the kids. In the summers, we would all travel together. But during the right. school year, she was home and, and with them. How and old I would are your kids? Shows. 26 and 23. Okay. So they're just like a step above because I've got 21 and 23, almost okay. 24. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was about uh, about that same age range. Your older one probably would have been like, yeah. well, are they boys, girls, boy, girls? Uh, my oldest they is a uh, female. Uh, son is uh, 23. And it, like you, we're now empty nesters. I mean, we've devoted our whole lives to being, you know, to raising these kids. And it's only been since the pandemic that we've been able to travel the two of us together. And it's a whole new experience. It's so different. It is so different. It's so different. And I will never regret doing what we did as a family because they are trauma bonded. Yeah. Because of all the different things that we put them through. But there's something to be said for their relationship, too, to be like, okay, guys, we're going to be in a van for the next three weeks and Mm -hmm. uh, travel across. I mean, we traveled across the country multiple times, you know, all kinds of camping in between. Mm -hmm. They 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 had to get together. They were kind of their only friends when we were on the road and they had to learn to help everybody. And we all were very, we're all still very, very close, probably because of it, you know, or despite it. And there's so many, they've got so many stories from our days on the road. And like I said before, I think I blacked out for a couple of years because there's a I lot totally of stuff did. that they'll start telling. And I'll be like, I ha- I have no memory. Are you, I was like, probably, well, are you sure that really happened to our family? Because I don't remember that. Not, not I, once. <laughs> no, I mean, I probably, you know, well, you, but you're also wearing so many different hats yeah. during the whole experience. So they they have stories to last a lifetime. And at the end of our conversation the other day, they were like, oh, no, it was great. We had a, you know, we loved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wouldn't trade it. They got to see so much of the country. Right. Um, and my, our son is, he's like, 
gung ho to do this himself too. So he's looking to to hop on this bandwagon and travel around and sell stuff. So apparently, Whoa. apparently didn't deter him. Exactly. Well, what does he do? What's he What's he like to make? He's oh, he's so he's so creative. He's he's got such an interesting aesthetic, and he works with acrylics and paint pens and spray paints and all kinds of stuff. And he's got his own. Just I'm fascinated by his work. Nice. He's getting bodies of work together, and he also has seen us work our butts off, and so he knows how much work goes into it and how you really have to devote yourself. So. I'm really impressed, and I'm always excited to see what he comes up with. I will say that they that kids learn a certain kind of work ethic by watching mm-hmm. us do what we do. Yeah, and I think also seeing the payoff, both in terms of being able to sell your work and interact with people, but in doing what you love to do. Yeah. And, you know, if there's nothing else that I taught my kids is that if you work hard, you really can do what you love to do. Yeah. Uh, so... Yeah, I'm excited for him. But as far as being empty nesters, it's pretty, it's way different. And it was a little bit of an adjustment, I think, when the kids were gone and Scott started coming to all the shows with me. So it's now, I did a lot of shows by myself. Okay. You know, because like during the school year, like Renee would stay home. Yeah. During the school year, somebody had to be home. And so Scott would stay home and I'd drive to Texas by myself and do a bunch of shows and yeah. Or wherever I was going to go. And then, and I got to be kind of fiercely, staunchly independent. And so when Scott started coming to shows and helping, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I did quote unquote, because yeah. to me, I was like, well, this is my way of doing it. Right. Um, I don't need your help. I've done it by myself. Uh, but man, it is so, so much nicer to have a partner there helping. And it's been really fun to just be able to hang out and travel together and yeah. worry about feeding ourselves. And and kind of like to rediscover your spouse in a new way. You know, it's kind of like going back to those days before kids in a way. Like yeah. the conversation, obviously our conversations are still about like what our kids are doing. And I mean, that's important. And we're thinking about them a lot. But then there's stuff that has nothing to do with the kids. It's about what we want to make or it's about, you know, the things that excite us. And it's like a whole new world. You get to kind of think about yourself again. Yeah, it is really fun and have like have ideas together and, you know, make new plans. And that it is it's really special. And I'm really grateful for this time. And so hopefully if Scott's wing gets fixed, he'll be able to be on the road with me again Yeah, (laughs) this year. One thing I always found interesting is I would remember like an experience on the road with the kids and I would think of it like, my God, what are we doing to these guys? These kids are, they're they're hating every second of it, right? And then we look Mm -hmm. back and they'll tell the story, but from like this this excited point of view or, oh, remember the time we did this? Remember? I'm like, you hated that. You complained the entire time, but they actually liked it. They actually enjoyed, like when we'd go to the Wisconsin Bells after a show or something, they actually did enjoy it, even though they they fought the entire time. They they, were like, can we be done? (laughs) Yeah. 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 No, I think that their memories are gilded, you know, Yeah. somehow, despite everything. And so- I'm I'm really happy that we did that as a family. It just feels really special. It feels very unique. And this is where being on, 
you know, at art shows and on the circuit feels like home to them as well. It feels like they're, these are the other people. I mean, these are people that watched them grow up since they were babies. Like Maya was on my back at shows, you know? And so they feel at home there. They see other, like are so kids, I call them, but you know, as, as people are growing and even little kids now, and they, I think they have a special bond with them as well, because it's a lot of the people in their, their, peer groups at home probably had no understanding of what their life was like. Mm-hmm. And they both look back on it very fondly and are grateful for the unique perspective that they have. And being able to just see people all over the country, different kinds of people, and interact with people from all over the place has made them very well-rounded. And so I see young families on this circuit now, and I'm really happy for them. And I, I always just want to encourage them. Like, it's you're doing okay. And I, every mother probably feels, and every father too, like yeah. feels like they're 1,000% failing at all the things. I don't but, know. There are some families out there. Like I see, you know, Jeremy and Chelsea, man, they seem as patient as patient can be. Their two little girls are so adorable, and they're always smiling. And I'm sure, you know, I've oh never caught gosh, them at a meltdown yeah. moment. But it just, I see those people. I'm like, why couldn't our? In, why couldn't we have been like in that? In the background, in the background, they're like, "What? What day did you see us?" <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, I yeah, I definitely, I see, I see families being, you know, kids that are so so well behaved and yeah. having a good time, and it makes me really happy because I'm sure ours ours looked like that once in a while. Would, um, would you say back when you would go off and do shows on your own that there was that, you know, being being a mother, that yeah. guilt, that pressure, that, I mean, what kinds of feelings would go through your mind when you'd have to go off to work but then leave the kids home? It was horrible. That piece of it was horrible. And in what respect? Because you always feel like you're not doing it well. Like you're doing mm-hmm. a lot of things half-assed. I, I, I'm going to put this back on me. Like, I felt like I was doing things half-assed. I was doing my work half-assed. I was talking to other people half-assed because I was always thinking about what was happening at home. Mm -hmm. And then when I was at home, I was parenting half-assed because I was working so hard to get stuff ready for the next show. Um, uh, And there was a lot of pressure and a lot of guilt. But I also was fiercely independent Mm -hmm. and very... I don't want to say ambi- like ambitious, but there was this, um, I don't know if I can find the word for it, just this like need to prove that I could do it. Yeah. I, I just need, I felt like I needed to prove that I could, I could do it. And I wanted to, and I wanted to prove to my daughter, especially that you could be a strong woman in the world and you could make your own path. Mm-hmm. That always pushed me to keep going. I sometimes wonder, like, you know, when when a dad goes off to work, I would say it's common to feel like that's my job. It's my job now to go make money to support the mm-hmm. family, and that's my role. I think from my mother, who was a single mother, I had no father in the picture, basically, until I was older, and I kind of can tap into with her that feeling of, like, I have to do you know, the financial role, but then also the nurturing role. And it's like, if you're invested in, let's say, one area at a particular time, the going out to do the shows to make make the money, you feel like, well, I should be home nurturing the kids. And then if you're nurturing the kids, you're thinking about how I should be out on the road making the money because this is my career. 
and this is what I'm passionate about, but then you might feel guilty about having a passion that's outside of your children. It's mm -hmm. like, how do you balance those two things? There's, there's, you know, that word balance is always thrown around and I don't think it's bullshit. I don't think there is any balance. I think you, it's like a snow globe. You shake it up and you just uh, <laughs> accept that all of these things are coexisting in this little realm that we're living in and you shake it up and you see where everything lands. And some days you do some things well, and some days you do other things well, and some days you do nothing well. And mm -hmm. in the end, the most important thing to me was to make sure that my kids knew that they were loved and that even if I was on the road, I'm still there. I'm still there for them. I still, I called home every single night that I was on the road and told them, you know, we had this night night story that I would say to them every night Aww. before they went to bed. I mean, all the way until they were teenagers. And so every single night, didn't matter where, what show I was at, I would leave the booth and go call and do the night night story and say goodnight to them. Oh, um, and so, so you know, and at that time I was, there would be people in the booth and I'd be like, sorry, this is what I'm doing. Right. Um, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. So maybe not doing everything well, but it was, that was the most important thing just to let them know that they, they were loved and I'm doing this for myself and I'm doing this for them and we're all going to be okay. Yeah. I'll come back home. We'll, we'll have a good time. And, um, and I, hopefully it all, <laughs> hopefully they saw that as well, but yeah, it's not an easy choice. I think for anyone to work and parent, mm -hmm. it's, that, that's, it's an individual choice for every single person, whether they want to be, whether they want to stay home, whether they want to work full time, put their kids in daycare or, you know, we chose what we chose partly because we could always have somebody home with them. So when I was on the road, Scott was there. There was always a parent there. Mm -hmm. And I think my son said something about, you know, remembering these, his upbringing as being very manic <laughs> and <laughs> frantic because it was like the work was in a, it was manic mode. It was frantic mm -hmm. mode. But the flip side was that then for six months I was home. I was home with them yeah. and I was, you know, going to all their um, activities and being around for what they needed. And here I'm sitting in this, like you see this, this yellow chair. Yeah. This is the studio chair. This is the chair that every day, this has always been in my studio and the kids would come home from school. They'd walk in and I'd be working in the studio and it's where they would come in and they'd sit and they'd tell me about their day. Oh, it was so... the comfy chair where I could be working and it was sort of like I'm sort of focusing on something else and it gave them space to just say what they wanted to say. I have very fond memories. I have very happy memories of of doing this kind of work mm -hmm. with my kids around. I can wax poetic and like, oh, I just <laughs> I love them. I'm so proud of them. I'm I just think the world of of them and they're they're good humans and that's kind of all you can ask for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Were you able to like you know, take a break from work at a, at give a given point. Like, let's say the kids would come in and suddenly that you know you need to pull focus to them. Because for us, glass yeah. blowing, we can't set it down till it's done. You know, and that's true, and that's the the beauty of this this per, this actual medium is that I'm working on things, and then I'm die I'll die things, and then it has to sit for hours. Mm. So I could work during the day when they were at school. I could get everything you know orchestrated in the uh, in the studio so that. Everything gets, I knew that I could get things done to get them in the dye baths or get a dye wash on them by the time they came home from school. And then they'd sit for the next couple of hours. We'd have the afternoon, evening together. And then after they went to bed, I went back into the studio. Wow. Uh, and so that, that, that's probably unique to this, you know, mm -hmm. to this medium. It definitely helped. And it still is like that. We're all, 
I can come in for a couple of hours and then I can go out into the garden for a while, come back and mm-hmm. so I can work on it in bits and pieces. And I was able to take a break. But yeah, not not like, you know, mm. being in the hot shop and being like, you hold on, let me turn this off. The kids are Let's fighting about snow. something. They won't no. give me the remote. It's like, you're going to have to work this out amongst yourselves. We'll, we'll be done <laughs> yeah. in a half hour. <laughs> you know, it's like a real definitive period where we can oh. stop. Oh, for sure. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. Which was probably good for them too. Yeah. Learn life skills or we'd go to pick them up from school. Literally, we'd blow glass right up to the second we had to hop in the car to go get them. We'd have burnt paper stuck to our face. We smelled like a campfire. I mean... When your kids sort of look back, did they think you were... Weird? Did they they think you were weird? Did they ever have times where they were like, you're not like the other parents? Why is our family not like... Well, I will say there was a lot of like, you're not like normal people. And we've had that conversation um, as adults now, looking back on it. And, you know, our daughter is a master's in psychology. And so she's had time to analyze and share with us kind of like our parenting style. Oh, I bet she has so much to share. I'd be so curious. And I was like holding my breath when she was talking about like the different types. Like, I don't remember them. I'm going to get them wrong, so I don't want to. But basically being like more of a controlling parent versus being a too loose of a parent or having like mutable rules, like depending on the situation or malleable or Mm -hmm. something. And she was basically saying how we were really, we were really good and what she needed. And I was like, when she left, I'm like, thank God, I thought that was going the other way. (laughs) 100%. I'm still a little bit like, I I don't think I want to ask those questions quite yet. (laughs) Wait till they're a little farther out. So our daughter has a a child now. So I've got a grandbaby and it's been really, it's so much fun. And and for everybody on the circuit that has seen our kids grow up too, it's so much fun to, to share that. And it's interesting seeing her parent and getting her perspective now on how we parented. Oh, and I yeah. do hold my breath when I ask questions. <laughs> well, I had a chance to come over to visit you and your neighbor, Amber Marshall, uh, who I've talked to on the podcast a few years back. And they've yeah. got the most beautiful little baby yep. in her booth. And oh, I yep. see you sitting there and you're glowing. You're holding her and oh. you are just glowing oh. back there. <laughs> 100%. 100. I mean, I just, I just adore, I adore that baby. I adore all baby. I, I adore my kids. I had so much fun with them and I love that they are bringing her to shows. And then, you know, Amber and I are not that, that we're basically the same age. Okay. And, I got to have this grandbaby about the same time that they had baby Louie. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so I've gotten to do all these baby things again, yeah. but then I I send them back right. and I go to sleep and I'll text Amber and be like, oh my gosh, this is exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> how are you doing this? <laughs> I forgot how exhausting this is. Good, good. Way to go, girl. Yeah. You, you're doing it. You're doing it. I, I do wonder. I mean, I've, I've since um, Mike and Amber had Lou, I've thought to myself, what would it be like to be a parent now, that stage of life that they're in? It's like you have so much of life learned and there's such a sense of like calm that comes over mm-hmm. that I think I would have been a totally different parent had I been parenting now. Yeah, absolutely. I think that they're going to skip over a lot of the trial and errors that we did. Yeah. 
for sure. <laughs> because they've already had life <laughs> life under their belt. And yeah, way more relaxed. I had met somebody when my kids were little who was, a, you know, a grandmother. And she said, you know, when you're young, you've got the energy. And when you're older, you have the patience. That is and so true. That's absolutely true. So wow. I guess, yeah. And I, I, I'm absolutely loving the Nana part and having this little person that is, is so much like my kids mm-hmm. getting to, to see them in this little person again. And this time having the patience and not having like this frantic of a life so that I can enjoy it. Yeah, And it's, I I wish grandparenthood on everyone because it's so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're gonna wait a while. I hope. <laughs> well, My kids are you ready. Never know. You I never mean, know. We thought so too, but here he he showed up, and it's just been absolutely fantastic. It works so out, right? It just all works out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to switch gears here a little bit because one of the things I have wanted to talk to somebody, another artist, about mm-hmm. for a while is talking to somebody who is an artist who also was on a board of a show or helped with planning a show yes. and you fit that description. You I do. You are on the board for I can art, put that feather in my it, in my head. In your head and art in the high desert. Um so can yeah. you talk about your getting involved with that and kind of what that's like being an artist also being on the other side of things and, and working to produce a show. Yeah. That was absolutely eye opening. Really? Yes. I will absolutely hold my tongue when I need to complain about a show from here on out. Okay. I mean, of course, there are things that shows can do better all the time. And since I've been on the board, I can tell them exactly how. (laughs) But um, it is the amount of effort and energy that goes on to putting on a show is just immense. And it's why shows have, you know, they have production companies do it. Mm. That's why they pay people Mm -hmm. to be directors and have these huge crews to put on shows. What are some of the things that surprised you the most? Like, what did you learn that you go, oh, my God, I did not realize that there was this element involved with running a show? All of it. (laughs) Just the logistics, like licensing and all that kind of stuff, venue. Yeah, the the business aspect of it is huge, right? So, I mean, for Art in the High Desert, that was a show that was, you know, it had already existed, but had basically been shut down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was like a three-year hiatus. It had basically been shut down and had to restart again. And, and yeah, in a so different the, location. I mean, there were so many like hurdles. It wasn't was, like you could just start it up the way it was three years ago. Right. It So much had changed in the town. And when we were brought in, the new location was already set. And it was understood that there is no way we can go back to the old location. Mm-hmm. It's not an option. There's no way to be in Bend. Mm-hmm. this is our option. And if we want this show to exist, this is what we're going to have to work with. Right. The marketing was huge. And I didn't do a lot of this. David Bjerstrom did so much. Yeah. And the amount of work that he put into this was absolutely immense. And it was really a full-time job for him. I mean, there's the licensing. There's like getting all the government state licenses and making sure all that's in in line. And then also having to you know, learn how to communicate through Zap mm. and learn how to all these different email marketing platforms and integrating them. And I know this year there there was some sort of issue with emails not actually going back and being seen because they got, you know, there's like tiny little 
strings that attach all of these different places that information is coming into on the internet. Okay. And if one string isn't attached, like this is where you have to have IT people oh. to make sure that uh, that information is coming to the right email and is actually getting seen or it's going off into who knows where land. And then all the effort is lost then because it didn't yeah, get received. It's, it's like if you think about all the little details of running your own business and and responding to customers and using your website interface, using your your whatever your merchant service is, it's like that, but on a whole larger scale. Mm-hmm. That part was a it took a lot more work and effort than any of us imagined. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the the side of the marketing, the tracking down of accounts. Even just trying to get in touch with people to arrange certain things, whether it was for an interview or for marketing, it, it, sometimes it's a couple of days of back and forth trying to track somebody down to find a time to be able to just have a conversation. Yeah, and so that dug into our studio time so much of every day. Like, okay, I have three people I need to contact, but you know, right, can't get a hold of them. So, as board members, I'm assuming all the different board members were assigned maybe like different tasks that they kind of oversaw. Is that so? Kind of how I think last year we were, it was a little bit of like we were off to the races well after the race had started. Okay, like we were we were way behind oh. and playing catch up quite a bit. None of us were, I think, very prepared for all the work that it was that was going to happen. So it was very much uh, like, okay, this has to happen. Who can take care of this this week? Okay. Um, so we all really had some titles in there as board members, mm-hmm. but we were all just doing everything that needed to happen. We all worked pretty well together last year in the sense that we had a common goal. We just we were we were very invested on keeping this show alive. And, and that was it a big really one. was like yeah. a resuscitation. Yeah. And it, that's what it felt like. It felt like a resuscitation. Mm-hmm. And so we were all willing to do whatever was necessary just to keep it going. It just felt like a lot of work. Yeah. And then I think the emotional part that we all carried because we wanted it to be successful. We knew what it meant for artists for the show to come back. We knew what it meant for artists to take a risk and do the show again, considering that it was in a new location. Mm -hmm. And it felt very, it was very intense and it felt very heavy to to really want to make it successful for everybody. Mm -hmm. It was not an easy task. Yeah, I really think that the emotional weight of it was much more than we expected. And I think the first day when the show opened and we actually, I mean, we got there and it was the first time 80% of us had seen the site. So we had no idea Mm -hmm. what we were looking at. We had no idea how far out of bend it was Mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. And we thought, we don't know if people are going to show up. And we've just put all of this time and effort and energy and money into this. And then all of these other artists have also put their trust in us and taken a huge risk to come sometimes across the country. And it felt very much like it was artists coming to support those of us that were doing this. Yeah. And so it felt very personal. Um, so when the gates opened that first day, I think there were tears. Wow. Definitely. Yeah. Just because we were just grateful that that people were showing up and we were hopeful. And um and you know, when the show was done, then you have the conversation of what worked and what didn't work. And you really don't know until it's done what works and what 
you know, what was going to work and what didn't work. It was definitely the 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 right footing, though, to 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 get it viable again. So, I mean, you guys should pat yeah. yourselves on your back for that, and that you're willing to look at how do we make it better, what what oh, didn't work yeah. and what did work, and then to forge ahead in that in that regards. Yeah, and I think we were, you know, we had if this had been maybe another production company in Bend that had taken it over, mm-hmm. maybe put it on at the fairgrounds and they may have been like, ah, oh, yeah, success. Look at, we got this many people. Artists showed up. We made this much money. But as artists, we looked at it as, was this really successful in terms of, was it successful for the artists? Was it successful for the the patrons? Mm-hmm. Is it something that is viable and will continue to grow? And we had to look at that. And I mean, we immediately knew the answer that it needed to change. Mm-hmm. There were some specific things and significant things that needed to change. And all egos aside, we were like, yeah, we might have to pivot. And pivot. so that's yeah. uh, that's what we did. And I will say, and I'm not on the board. I'm, I'm a, what is it? A advocate. Okay. <laughs> but I will say because of all the work, I was whooped and I had to step back okay. and say yeah. like, for my health and sanity, like I, it's, I'm going to hand this particular uh, part of this job over to somebody else. And so I was kind of acting treasure bookkeeper, like all the number stuff that I don't love anyways right. and took up so much mental energy. So I handed that off to somebody else, okay. which I'm very thrilled about. <laughs> uh, but but still, as an advocate for the show, I can definitely speak to how the group worked to deal with the fact that, yeah, I don't think being at the fairgrounds is a great idea. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Daryl Cox, who's really the logistics guy, yeah. uh, got his foot in the door really quickly with the Parks and Rec and somehow managed to work with some groups that we didn't think were going to be amenable to us yeah, and secured this spot that is right by the old location. Cool. Uh, so I'm very excited about that. So, yeah, I mean, to speak to being on a board and working for a show, I think every art show should have artist advocates on the board because we see things very differently than maybe a community member or a production company does. Right. And there are specific things that that are that are important for both artists and for patrons. Patrons, right. What what's important to those to those folks? And not just as a money making event, because you know in some regards the business person who's running that aspect of it has to know all the licensing and the insurance and the what's Mm -hmm. important from that aspect of it. But to know what getting to the heart of what's important mm-hmm. to make art the forefront of the event and why these are important. You need to have to hear from artists to know about and that. I, and that's going to help the longevity of a show yeah. because you do want to attract long-term collectors. You want to attract more collectors coming in. Artists know how to do that. That's what we work our, our whole careers doing yeah. is, uh, is working with patrons and collectors and forging those relationships, you know, listening to them too and hearing what they want from an experience. Mm-hmm. So that was a, it was, it was really interesting for me to be at the show, being on the back end of it. Yeah. Having my ears open to other artists. Yeah. You know, having my own experience there as an artist, listening to other artists, but then really listening to what the customers were saying as well and what the patrons were saying and taking that into account. And so 
each party comes in with different wants and needs and orchestrating those into something that is well-rounded and works for everybody is it's a huge endeavor and shows that do it well i know <laughs> that there's just there's so much that goes on behind the scenes that we don't see right and it goes along the lines too of forging relationships with community with different parts of the community as well and there are shows that do it beautifully and i'm very grateful and then you know when there's little things that go wrong at shows uh-huh. or or whatever i just have to think you know what it's okay right they're totally overwhelmed you know somebody back there is scrambling to fix this right yeah <laughs> and i'm just not seeing it right now and, and to not have the first thought be that it's an incompetence thing it's just one of those curveballs yeah. that get thrown and really just trust it's going to happen and you know like you said yeah. having artist advocates i think is huge because knowing what's important to artists uh, for the event is yeah. really important. Yeah, keeping the your finger on the pulse of of what artists know. And, you know, and the other thing is that, you know, when I look at some of the the large shows and the production companies and things, like I do want them to understand that we we know what we're doing. Yeah, been, right. We know what we're doing. We've been doing this for a long time. And so it's important that they listen to us because we do have some we have valid valid thoughts and ideas. Yeah. Valid concerns. They may not have the experience of understanding. It's true. So, I mean, yeah, not just like some disgruntled, flaky artist. You know, we all run our separate right. business models. Right. And this is not about like, I don't know, I don't like the pettiness of like who juries in and who doesn't jury in. I think that's the least of the worries in in some senses on putting on a show. You get a good jury out there and, yeah. you know, good applicants, and that part's going to get taken care of. We talk about juring a lot from different nuances, but I really, I and I stand by the statement, as much as I hate to get juried out of a show that I love to do, I know that getting juried out of a show for a year or two and then coming back or whatever, it does keep a sense of freshness for the show, for the patron, for a sense that they might not be here next year. So if I am really inspired by yeah. what I see right here, I need to act and I need to jump yeah, in. Yeah, a sense of a sense of urgency on yeah. the part of the buyers. And I think that, that we saw that after the pandemic was, you know, after oh. we went back to shows for the first time and people realized like, oh, this might not Right, you this know, this could away. go away. This <laughs> yeah. couldn't be, this might not be here next year. And I kind of love when people ask me at shows, you know, well, you're coming back next year, right? And I'll be like, I don't know. If they have me. Depends. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. It really depends on how things go. And they're yeah. always surprised. Like, oh, really? Yeah. We all get those disappointing jury results once yeah. in a while. And I did this year. I went, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> I got, you know. Me, along with, you know, a hundred other people got waitlisted for Cherry Creek and you went, oh, wah, wah. Damn, yeah. um, but after you lick your wounds for a minute and you realize this is good for the show. Yeah. This is maybe good for me because this means that I can't just keep up with my own status quo. Right. Yeah. Maybe it's time for some new work. Yeah. That's a maybe really this good is point. allowing me. You know, this is allowing me some space for some, just some movement in in what I'm doing as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that as hard as it is on everyone's ego to to get the rejections, it's part of what we do. And 
it's not always a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. It's good to show up at a, a new show once in a while, too. I try to add a show that I've never done every year or two just to see. Right. Just to find out, you know, and to get your work in front of new people. And you just never know. Mm. And sometimes they're surprising. Our job is to make the work. And then our job is to show up with the work. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it doesn't matter where you show up. You just have to show up in a bunch of different places sometimes. You'll carry around a piece for years and you've taken it to all the great shows. Yeah. You're wondering, why do I still have this? Yeah. And then show up somewhere where you least expect it. And that's where that's where its person is. You talked so, about the magic earlier. Do you ever feel like that piece is meant for someone? And sometimes we have to travel around with it for a while until it yeah, finds its home? I do. I absolutely do. And I I intentionally, I have intention about that in the studio. We do the same and, thing, actually. We set an intention towards the work. And yeah. oftentimes, this sounds a little hippy-dippy, I'm sure, but before we go to a oh, well, show. Look, have you seen me? Do you know me at all? <laughs> what? Hippie, I'm all about it. Bring it. You're the hippy-dippy? Okay. But do you ever do this? We will send out gratitude to the people who are going to connect to the work before it happens because, you know, there's that space-time continuum where things are kind of overlapping and happening, not necessarily chronologically. So if we Mm -hmm. operate under the assumption that that connection has happened and and we are thanking the person for that in the present. It does. That's part of the energy that goes into the work. And I think that that is tangible energy that goes out into the world. Um, And I absolutely love, you know, when I see the person Mm -hmm. who I made it for and I, Mm -hmm. and I say, Oh, it's you. I didn't know, but I was thinking about you all along. It's you were the one I was waiting for. You were the one. (laughs) And, you know, and then to hear the story of why, and a lot of these stories are just beautiful and sometimes heartbreaking and, um, uh, yeah, absolutely magical. But yes, that is a huge part of, of, what I do in the studio is setting that intention and really like taking some time to, you know, I don't want to just make a bunch of stuff just for the sake of making stuff. I have no, no desire just to put more random stuff in the world. Right. If I'm going to put something out there, I want it to, I want it to mean something. I want it to help, you know, Mm -hmm. I sit in my studio and how is this helping the world? There is just horrible, atrocious things happening all over the place. What am I doing sitting here just, is this is this helping at all? And there's, you know, you can get into some. <laughs> some like, but it's also the studio is a good. Think about it. Yeah, but the studio is a good place to shut out the atrocities of the world and just hone in on, you know what yeah. I mean? Shut out what's online, shut out what's on social media, right. shut out what's on the news and just really create. I try to I try to make sure that I'm being aware of of the fact that I'm very privileged to be able to do this and that there is awful things happening. And if I'm going to make something, I want it to be something that does good in the world. So if I'm going to put something out there, I want it to have energy that counteracts whatever other atrocious things are happening. And it's really wonderful when you get it out there and, and it finds its person and you find out why and you, and you realize like, Oh, this is, this is a healing piece for them. And Mm -hmm. I've, I've helped somebody. And, you know, part of making work in the midst of horrible things happening, wars and 
artists have been doing this forever is just creating the world you want to see, putting the energy out that the world needs, creating something that is counter to the horrible things that are happening mm-hmm. to try to help balance it out. So one of the like the the bits of magic like we were talking about happened this year, and I'll send you a picture of it too, of okay. this piece I had done that, of course, it meant something to me and it was really special to me. And some folks came into the booth and were looking at it and said that they needed their decorator or their designer to come and look at it. And oh, I was sure. like, that's the kiss of death. Right. That's the, okay, this ain't happening. <laughs> no interior decorator wants my woo-woo stuff in their in their <laughs> clients' houses. Um, but sure enough, he came in and he was like, yeah, yeah, I like this. I like this a lot. This is, let's do this. And so sale was made. They gave us their address. We went to deliver it. And it turns out it was, oh, just one of those things that kind of made me cry. Really? Like they had lost their home and all of like all of their stuff two years before in the it was the fires in I don't know Boulder oh. area, Long Longmire, Long something or other. Okay. And they had lost their home. They had lost everything in this and like probably barely got out with their lives at the time. And they had just finished their building their house back on the exact same spot that the old house was. Okay. We're just moving in. And this was the first piece that they wanted to have in their new home. Oh, wow. And so we delivered it. All you can see is just this like scarred, scarred area of land and a couple of new homes that are built. And just to see like what it meant for them to bring something to make their home feel like home again. Right. Or to build on that's It's like this is what they're going to build from. Yeah. And this, it was one of those times when I just, I was just like, you're who I made this for. Right. I, I didn't know, but I'm so glad to meet you. And I'm so grateful to be part of this experience with you. And then our son is a wildland firefighter as well. So he was probably off on a fire at that time. And so there was a lot of full circle moments in that experience. And it's just another one of those, like, yep, the magic, another magic thing happens. So yeah, I love that. There you go. That's cool. Yeah. I'll send you a picture of that. And it looked absolutely stunning. It was a really fun experience. Wow. That's so amazing. I love it. Yeah. So there's a that's there's a lot of there's a lot of that hippy dippy woo woo that yeah. I play around with in here. Uh because that's that's the magic. <laughs> that's that. And it and it works. <laughs> it does. It ha- I mean, time and time again. It's it does not ever fail me that it that it works. And it amazes me every single time so it keeps me going that's so, so cool. i i, I yeah. truly i feel like we've we have kind of the thread throughout this whole talk is been about that magic the magic of why we do it how we do it and the connection of when we meet the the, the person our work is supposed to is meant for this talk has been yeah. really really cool i'm really happy we were able well, to do it, makes it. Me like all right we'll keep we'll keep working <laughs> where, where when will you be back out on the on the well on the i have good news um yesterday uh we did a little maintenance on our furnace and turned on the power started the slow ramp up to temperature and our furnace will be up to temperature next week so i should be back in the studio and so wait a second. Does it take Dependent. a week? All right. My understanding that this is taking it takes a week for the furnace to get up to temperature. It does. Yeah. What? <laughs> this is so yeah, much we can't more just, thought. Yeah. Yeah. There really is. Um, you know, people will ask us. Like collectors will come in and they'll say, "Well, 
you know, are you going to go home and turn on your ovens and get to work? Well, the glass blowing furnace that holds the glass has to stay at 2,100 degrees solid. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's four or five days to cool down, four or five days to heat back up again. Good Lord. So if the power goes out, then you're like, well, I guess we start over. I guess, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and this is, you know, I can appreciate that, you know, you're not coming home and making 50 pieces in three days between shows if you sell out. You're, this is, you've got to think ahead. You really have to plan ahead. And right. I mean, there's definitely been times that I'll be at a show and be like, ah, I wish I was a painter and could go home and paint real quick. <laughs> Not that all painters or, paint real quick, but, you know, you always sort of think about like, what if I had chosen a medium that was fast? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or that you could do in your hotel room. <laughs> or that you could do it. Oh, my Lord. You know, I don't... <sighs> I don't want to be working all the time, though. <laughs> so I just don't. <laughs> I think we've said enough. We're going to run down a rabbit hole and people are going to be like, oh, that got dark. <laughs> we thought she was so nice. She's actually just this <laughs> dark, mean. <laughs> I'll say some bad things. No, I won't. Uh, yeah, well, so we'll is... be back in the studio next week. And hopefully um, the plan is to be on the road by April. So if we'll, we have shows lined up starting mid-April. In mid-April, Texas stuff. Texas. Texas. All right. We'll be in Texas. All right. Yep. Back in Texas. We'll, we'll <laughs> see. Maybe see you there. Yeah. Well, good. Well, this has been lovely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. I've really enjoyed our talk and I can't wait to see you on the road this year. So, yeah. And maybe we'll be, we'll get to be uh, with neighbors. Neighbors. And yeah. Spread the. <laughs> Spread the conversation out through a whole weekend. Let's keep, let's and, just keep this uh, rolling, love shall for we? You, love for you to I'll always love for people to chat with Scott because he is the he's the entertaining, fun one of our crew. And yeah, um, anybody who's been neighbors with us knows there's shenanigans that happen. So I love that word shenanigans. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you take care of yourself. Thank you so well, much. Thanks, Douglas. You Have go. a good one. Okay, bye. This podcast is brought to you by the National Association of Independent Artists. The website is naiaartists.org. Also sponsored by Zapplication. That's zapplication.org. And while you're at it, find us on social media and engage in these conversations. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to be notified when we release new episodes. Oh, and if you like the show, we'd love it if you would give us your five-star rating and offer up your most creative review on your podcast streaming service. See you next time.